Welcome to 30 Minute Theology, a podcast where we discuss the basics of Catholic belief and practice. I'm your host, John Bacon, and with me today is my co-host, Brother Mark. Brother Mark, how are you doing today? John, I'm having a great day. It's great to be here. Excellent. Today we are describing God's covenant in Scripture. Uh, Brother Mark, I've introduced Father Daniel before and what he does, He's a Byzantine priest. Can you just say a little bit about like how you teach Bible and why this is exciting to you? Oh, gosh, putting me on the spot here. Sorry, uh, it's not in the notes. <laughs> not in the notes. Um, well, I teach Bible because this is what God has given us to know Him, to know what He thinks. I, I, I often think of it, if we're going to talk about relationships and the giving of persons, uh-huh. and my parents had a great marriage, had a great relationship, and one of the reasons they did is because they were so close. My mom recently passed away, but mm-hmm. um, because they knew what each other was thinking, they knew what each other wanted or needed, and they knew what the other was going to do without ever asking. And when we talk about relationship with God, well, that's that's for us. We yeah. have to, to come to the place where we know Him that well. And the Word just gives us that. How do you know what God's thinking? Well, He's told us in the Word. How do you know what He expects? Yeah. How do you know what he, he wants from us? It's in the Word. How do you know uh, how He might act? Now, it's only analogous that we know what He's thinking, yeah. but... He gives us clues as to who he is and what he wants and how to live. So um, I think the Bible is super important. Prima Scriptura is what I would, I would say. Yeah, which is not Scripture alone, but Scripture primarily. Primarily. Scripture first. Scrip- scripture first, Scripture primarily, and then, of course, the church in their magisterium, which you'll get to later, church tradition, church interpretation. But the primary data comes from Scripture. Yeah. So um, you and I have both spent time as Protestant ministers and come into the Catholic Church. And um, today, we basically everything I have prepared in my notes, I am plagiarizing from Scott Hahn. You know, I thought about this. If I got taken to court for plagiarizing Scott Hahn, it means that I would get to meet Scott Hahn. So (laughs) I am shamelessly stealing all his material, especially from his book, I, this book is amazing. I found it in my office here. It's the Director of Religious Education. It's called A Father Who Keeps His Promises, God's Covenant Love in Scripture. So a lot of my content comes from this book. I'll say a word about Scott Hahn because it actually helps make sense of um, this topic. So Scott Hahn, uh, you can read him and his wife Kimberly Hahn's conversion story in a book mm. called Rome Sweet Home, which is a really good book. And uh, Scott Hahn was somewhat of a shining star in his Protestant theologi- uh, tradition. God gifted him with a wonderful mind. And um, he had a passion for, for biblical study like you and I have. Mm. And he was particularly obsessed with the covenant. because, And he's not entirely unique here. This is a very, pro- a very Calvinist Reformed insight. It's a good insight that the covenant is what is central to scripture but he in his passion for biblical study and biblical interpretation he came to a conclusion farther than what john calvin and the reformed tradition reached and this brings us into the definition of the covenant itself so when really 
devout, well-meaning Protestant theologians speak about salvation, which the covenant is related to salvation, they typically speak of an exchange of properties, an exchange of unrighteousness for righteousness. Um, Scott Hahn thought that didn't go deep enough because he believed that what Calvin and the Reformed tradition is calling a covenant is actually simply a contract. Because, Mark, if you and I agree to, like, share my car or something, and it was a formal and not an informal agreement, that wouldn't be a covenant. That would be the sharing of stuff. When my wife and I got married, that's a covenant. Right. Because we didn't say, uh, you know, the married joke, what's mine is yours, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine. It's not... <laughs> it's not... Uh, an agreement so much about our house or our school debt or our vehicles it's actually an exchange of ourselves right a covenant goes much deeper than a contract here's another way of thinking about it prostitution is a contract yep marriage is a covenant um because in the covenant we have a full exchange of persons and scott Hahn, so we'll We'll get a little bit more concrete in one moment. We'll begin to tie this into story in the Old Testament. But before we get into story, where this will make a ton of sense, one more sort of theological presupposition to all this. If a covenant is a total gift of persons, then covenant is what God does because covenant is who God is. And this is what we mean. So we talked in the Trinity episode about how God exists as an eternal gift um and there are multiple biblical images of this um but i think the most central one is god is love saint augustine quoting first john uh, chapter 4 verse 4 where it says god is love he uh points out that for god to be love which is a verb that god must be love not as an adjective, he must be the act of love. Mm. And to have the act of love, to be the complete exchange of gift, God must within himself be the lover, the beloved, and the love, which binds them together. So God exists as Trinity, an eternal singular act of self-giving, covenanted love to himself. And the reason that God interacts with creation that way is because it is God's very being to give himself in love. Mm. Anything you want to No, that? I was just thinking about, uh, as people are listening to this, probably having to maybe stop and go back and listen to that part again, because that's pretty thick, John. That's, that's pretty heavy. Good stuff, though. Thank you. It's impressive for a man from Arkansas. I... Uh, I joke about my background all the time. I told my 7th, 8th grade class the other day, because I speak with a somewhat southern accent speaking here in Montana. Like, where are you from? I drew Arkansas on the board. I told them I received my first pair of shoes at age 11 and learned my vowels somewhere along middle school and slowly <laughs> worked my way towards fluency. They were staring at me in disbelief. They were believing every word I said. <laughs> but whenever I say something uh, good, I joke about my upbringing. So... Um, Covenant is what God does because covenant is who God is. Because covenant is 
a, an exchange of persons. So this is the structure of a covenant. And uh, the example I'll give in marriage. So to have the covenant of marriage, you have to have two persons. A man and a woman. Who, Fair enough. Through yeah. the covenant, they become husband and wife. Uh, there is no covenant without persons. You can have a contract involving properties, but the exchange of persons is a covenant. Unless we're treating persons like objects, which right. is intrinsically sinful, like slavery or prostitution or something. Right. But in a loving, good, godly agreement, it's an exchange of, of persons you know, as John, persons I, and not I, as property. I, I think that's a great point. So when, when you said that at the very beginning... He maybe had some people going, okay, it's an exchange of persons. How does that work? But I think you just really made it super clear there that you can have a contract. I, I will buy lumber from you, and you will get receive this much from me. Yeah. Contracts very much include or might be centered on inanimate objects. But like you just said, a covenant does not exist without persons. Which means that it requires freedom for my wife and i to be yeah. validly married neither one of us could act under coercion right coercion yeah. uh nullifies and invalidates a covenant well, in we arkansas, had to freely stand back at the in altar. arkansas don't they have shotgun weddings back in arkansas i'm sure we do <laughs> yeah i you know i'm not a canon lawyer so i haven't had to deal with them but yeah so two persons have to um come together freely apart from coercion and um this is the second thing that distinguishes a covenant from a contract. A covenant is not so much a promise as it is an oath. A promise is an agreement between two people, a very solemn and serious agreement between two people, but it's horizontal. It stays at the level. When Lauren and I made a covenant of marriage, there's a third person, God. God is solemnly invoked. Uh, Scott Hahn points out that as post-Christian as our society is, uh, we strangely enough still have kind of an echo in this in that people place their hand on a Bible yep. when they take an oath in court yep. to speak the truth. That they're not just saying, like, well, you can take me my word. And it's like, no, your name's not big enough. <laughs> right. And so you got to put it on God's name. So uh, covenants are religious in nature. Third, there's a sign. So... Um, the sign that we humans give in marriage of our covenant is a marriage ring. The actual sign itself, though, is um, a husband and wife being one flesh. Right. So that's covenant. So Scott Hahn makes this argument that the Old Testament, which is the Old Testament, is all the books of Bible leading up to the Gospels. So everything from Genesis until the words of St. Matthew this is the generation of Jesus. These are the genealogy of Abraham and David. Everything in between those Old Testament, which yep. is better named Old Covenant. Yep. He sees the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, as a development of God's covenantal relationship with man. So uh, we've already spoken a little bit about Adam, but I'll just say it. Uh, a little bit from Pope John Paul II. Pope John Paul II in Theology of the Body points out that the first covenant we see in Scripture is marriage. And he refers to marriage as the primordial sacrament. Hmm. Um, 
which honestly I need not to go into that in too much depth right now. That will derail this whole thing. But this, the significant takeaway is that the strongest kind of most concrete example we have of the covenant as human beings is marriage. And this is the dominant image that God uses when he refers to his love for us mm. and his covenant of love towards us. That marriage is the dominant image. Um, not the only one, but it's the primary one. Uh, Genesis begins with God's gift of Eve to Adam, uh, the gift of husband and wife to yeah. one another. And it concludes with the marriage of Christ and the church. And in the middle, you have Jesus beginning his ministry at a wedding by yeah. turning wine, uh, water into wine. So the first covenant is between God and Adam. This, uh, the oath, or not the oath, but kind of, this is the way Scott Hahn structures this. Let me back up. As we go through these covenants and the develop, uh, development of them, these will be the features. Number one, God makes a covenant with a single human being. Not because that's the only person he has a relationship with, but because they are the head of the human party that he's making a covenant with. Does that make sense, Mark? It makes sense. Any clarification? Nope. So when God makes a covenant with Adam, uh, he's not saying, well, to hell with Eve. No, he's actually yeah. saving Eve in this relationship with yeah. Adam. Like, they're both included, but there's always kind of one figurehead God chooses in his establishment of the covenant. And uh, the covenant people that God creates is a couple a married couple and the sign of the covenant is the sabbath um, because the sabbath signifies um, rest that they exist on a plane above the animal plane and that they are created not only to enjoy one another as husband and wife but to enjoy god and i think that's that's a really important part that we often miss this idea of the intention from mm -hmm. the very beginning. On the seventh day, God rested, that there was this place, and, and Augustine's going to talk about this later, where when we truly know God, and in, in, in if marriage is that paradigm, that we know God to that extent, it's that when we truly enjoy God, mm -hmm. we find rest for our souls, as opposed to using the things of the world, because Augustine talks mm -hmm. about the things we use as opposed to the things that we enjoy. And the only thing we can truly enjoy is God himself. And he defined joy as finding rest for your souls. Yeah. And I think that's so important in today's culture because we use and use and use and we're consumers. That's right. And we never actually find rest for our souls. So going back to this, from the very beginning, as God promises us, we were intended to live in this Sabbath rest with God where we could find rest for our souls. And John Paul II, building on St. Augustine's distinction between enjoyment and use right. points out that because humans are created in God's image that humans likewise cannot be used but must right. be enjoyed and that Adam and Eve's enjoyment of one another and their enjoyment of God as husband and wife are uh, kind of two sides of the same coin yep. that the relationship which brings us back to the covenant yeah that this is all integrated um, Mark, would you like me to, to hand off the next one to you, Noah? Okay. Uh, yeah, the, the thing I like about Noah 
is you kind of see Adam take two. That's right. Um, and there's there's this storyline that is repeated over and over again. And it, it's actually, it, it's not part of the covenant narrative, but in each of these stories, there's this underlying theme. And the theme is this, God brings his people to a good land. Mm-hmm. So originally, Genesis 1, he creates this beautiful creation, it's beautiful, and he places humanity on it to enjoy it. Uh, Adam, in a garden, uh-huh. God places them in a good place that they might enjoy it. Uh, Noah, even after, so after the flood, God brings him to a renewed earth. The promises given to Abraham are repeated, that you might enjoy life, that life might be renewed, that you might have fellowship with me. Abraham, God brings Abraham from Ur, the Chaldeans, to a good land that he might be God's people, enjoy Mm -hmm. these covenant blessings and promises. Uh, Moses bringing Israel into Canaan, Okay, so they follow their father Abraham. Canaan could be, or Canaan was intended to be, uh, a new uh, a new garden for yeah. what what Adam and Eve could have had in the garden. It's Israel described could have almost had. identically to Eden. It's described <laughs> almost identically. Uh, David, uh, God will provide. Uh, they will create a people. He'll provide uh, safety and security. And then, of course, Jesus brings his church. Uh, ultimately to the new heavens and the new earth. So I, I think a lot of times it, to see in Noah, this is Adam take two. God's willing to start over. He That's starts right. with you know one new guy renewing the promises, renewing the uh, he, the plan is still in effect. It just and, and of course Noah ends up becoming Adam too. He gets drunk in a vineyard. Adam sinned in a garden. Noah yeah. sins in a vineyard. And it's like nobody ever wants the good place that God takes them to. Yeah. Every time God brings his people to a good place, they never seem to it want it. Uh, but, yeah, and with uh, the idea of the rainbow, I think it's kind of cool that the, the word for bow, he used the word for bow, catch it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily a rainbow. It's just like a bow that That's you right. would. And so that picture of the rainbow, of God hanging up his weapon mm-hmm. against humanity that he'll never, and so he promises, I will never destroy the world by a flood again. And so he hangs up his weapon, and he's going to take a different tack from here on out. Well, that's a really good point, because I'm going to quickly march through the development of these covenants, but you uh, detected something in God's covenant with Noah that I was going to bring out in uh, the covenant with Abraham, that there are major consequences for violation of the covenant. Yeah. I mean, we live this. Like, yeah. if I want to go be a bad husband, like, there are consequences for this. Yeah. Just natural. Not good. Um, likewise, there are consequences for infidelity to the covenant. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so let me explain the story of Noah real quickly. Um, why the world is so sinful is really fascinating and controversial. So we won't go into in Genesis 6 why the world is so controversial. Yeah. But... I mean, why the world was so sinful, but the world was so wicked that Genesis says uh, God basically regretted yeah. creating man, which is a little bit of a poetic anthropomorphism, yeah. but um, but whew, like it's bad. So God chooses Noah basically as a second Adam. Yeah, like Noah, not just Noah and his wife, but interesting. So we see expansion. It's Noah, his wife his sons, and their wives. Yeah. So now it's expanded to a family. Yeah. God floods 
huge area, world, known world, we don't know. Huge flood wipes out civilization and starts over with this family and a boat. And when uh, Noah comes out as a sort of second Adam, Mm -hmm. like you said, Mark, what does God do? God puts the bow in heaven facing up, which I think has a little bit of symbolic meaning to it that God has made this covenant to care for the earth and never flood it again. And God knows that Noah's not less sinful than Adam. I mean, he's Adam's son, right? Like, like you and I are sons of Adam. So he knows that there will be consequences of future covenant violation, like 20 minutes later, sadly, when Noah gets drunk. Well, the covenant doesn't face down, it faces up into heaven. Yep. Which I uh, don't always agree with the Jesus Storybook Bible for children, but this is one of the things it nails. Mm. It recognizes that God places his bow facing up into heaven, mm. that he's accepting the consequences on himself yep. of our disobedience. Coming forward to Abraham. Well, it, it just interrupted me. And the, the only other time that expression, image of God, is used uh-huh. is in Genesis 9 with reference to Noah. It's why humanity mm. cannot kill and why there's a there's the, the corporal punishment oh yeah is first uh, described in Genesis 9 and it's because mm-hmm. humanity's made in the image of God that's right um, yeah the sanctity of life is yeah. spelled out there so uh, we I'm gonna go through these kind of quickly sadly we can't do justice to any of this but I just want to provide a structure to development in the Old Testament so people know basically what's there and why it's there so then God makes a promise to a descendant of Noah named Abraham and God promises to Abraham that he will form of him a nation. Um, I have in my notes that God promises, this is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that, that he, uh, he will make of Abraham a nation, and he will bless him, and that through Abraham and his children, all nations will bless themselves. So this is a reminder that God's covenant with a person always has an outward dimension. Yep. God always elects somebody to salvation on behalf of others so that it may be mediated through them because God's election, his creation of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, is for the sake of all nations eventually. How that will actually unfold is something that unfolds over time throughout the story of Scripture. But um, interestingly enough, God chooses, chooses a man, Abraham, who's old and he and his wife can't have children. But God miraculously gives them a son. And this is the formation of the Jewish people. So God's covenant with Abraham, he makes Abraham a sort of chieftain of a people. Through Abraham, he forms a tribe. You read the rest of Genesis and you see Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons and some daughters, and they form tribes. So they're becoming a people now. And the sign of the covenant is circumcision, which um, I hope people know what circumcision is. God tells Abraham that his uh, little tribe will become a big people, and those people will be enslaved one day. Well, fast forward about 400 years, I believe. Yep, they're enslaved in Egypt, which is not what God created his people for. He created them to serve him, not to serve an egomaniac in Egypt who thinks he's a god and uh, enforces oppressive labor. So what does God do? He raises up Moses, which brings us to the covenant with Moses. Uh, through Moses, God liberates his people from Egypt. He gives them the covenant at Sinai, 
which is the giving of the law. Now the people are not simply um, tribes, but they're a whole nation. Mm. But that nation is not fully united um, monarchically until God raises up David, a shepherd from the sheepfolds. And this takes place several hundred years later. I can't remember off the top of my head many. But God raises up David, and he makes a promise to David that of David he will make a dynasty. Um, let me back up. Uh, David wants to make a temple for God, which he describes as a house. God promises to David that because of David's love for him, right. that he will build a house. So you get it? David wants to build a house for God. God says, no, I'll build you a house. And his house is a line of sons. And his line of sons will sit on a throne. And that throne is the sign of God's covenant with David, that through the Davidic throne, he will unite Israel. So none of these covenant nullify what comes before. It expands and develops what comes before. We only have a few minutes left, so here's what I'll say about the Old Testament. Um, nobody actually keeps the covenant for very long from a human perspective. Uh, why? Because they're human east of Eden, which yeah. means that they fail. So what does God do? Well, I don't want to make it sound like God made a plan and it didn't work. God's plans work. The point of these covenants was not to affect salvation. It was to prepare the way for salvation. Because ultimately, God has to have a human partner in the covenant who fulfills covenant requirements and also makes atonement for all the covenantal failures over the millennia by the Jewish people. So what does God do? The second person of the Trinity becomes a Jewish man. And his name is Jesus. And remember at the beginning of this episode, we said covenant is what God does because covenant is who God is. So the son who exists in an eternal relationship of obedience and love and trust to the father becomes a human being and lives a perfect life, reveals God. He is descended from Abraham. He is descended from David. He fulfills all of God's promises to Israel. He lives out the covenant God made through Moses. He actually fulfills law obedience in a way that no Jew ever had. And what is the covenant that Jesus gives? Well, Jesus uses the word covenant when on the Passover, which was the sign of the covenant God made through Moses, he holds up bread and wine, and he doesn't say what would have been said at a Passover. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. And this is my blood, which is poured out for you for the remission of sins. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So we said earlier that ultimately a covenant is an exchange of persons. And what we see in Jesus Christ is the covenant that he gives us in the Eucharist is himself. So we have finally reached the culmination of the covenant that Israel's failures atoned for. God's covenant with mankind is fulfilled. And that God himself is given as the gift through the covenant. And the formation of this community is not simply the expansion of Israel, but the institution of the Catholic Church, which is not limited to one place or one ethnic or geopolitical reality, but is the universal church. That was a blazing uh, march. (laughs) 
through scripture. If I could just, I, in, in closing, if I, I just want to highlight what you said and make sure people don't miss that, that what we said at the beginning, that covenant is about the giving of persons. And you, some of you have, might have had exposed to other theologies or think, well, no, I do like the contract. It, it makes sense. You know, you, you talk about the Susan Tree Covenant in Deuteronomy. Okay, we get all that. But if it's not primarily a giving of persons, mm-hmm. then what Jesus did is not as effective. That ultimately, the, as, as you've pointed out, the covenant that Jesus makes is not just simply an agreement that you'll do things and I'll do things. That's if it's right. not a covenant of the giving of persons, that what Jesus brings and what he gives is the remission of sins, he conquers death, uh, and he invites people into the inner life of God. That's right. It's about us becoming like him. So it is very important that uh, people hear what you said about covenant. It's the, it's the giving of persons, and especially as it culminates in Eucharist, that that's what we're doing weekly. We are, we are receiving the body and blood of Jesus. We are receiving him in his person. That's right. So uh, the Catholic Church is all about what evangelicals call personal relationship with God yeah. and Jesus Christ. And we are uh, just as adamant that that personal relationship is made possible by Christ's personal gift of himself. Yeah on the cross for us, and through the Eucharist to us. So uh, the call to covenant and the call to communion are really two sides of the same coin, that God has communion with us through covenant with us, and God's covenant with us is through Holy Communion. Amen. We're called to communion, called to covenant. Well, I've recommended Scott Hahn's book, God's Covenant Love in Scripture. Uh, Is there anything that you would like to recommend? Uh, gosh, at any time you can read... Again, I, I always go back to the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Thomas Aquinas has some great stuff on Eucharist. Uh, even, even the, uh, the, the Greek fathers. It, as long as there's an understanding of real presence mm-hmm. from me. The, the, read the theologians, read the classics, because they will defend and they will argue for some kind of real presence within the participation of you. And I just think that is, that's the key have to have that. So. Yeah. Uh, I just remembered one more patristic book, patristic book. So here's another short book by a church father that's an easy read. Once again, this is printed by St. Vladimir's Press. Mm-hmm. And it is Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching by St. Irenaeus of mm-hmm. Leon, which is a book I don't think a lot of people have heard of, but it's wonderful. It's like 60 pages. And what yep. Irenaeus does is he preaches the gospel from the Old Testament. Yeah because he has the same understanding as the apostles do. So um, if you want a more in-depth and poetic look at what we've discussed, in addition to Scott Hahn's A Father Who Keeps His Promises, you can read St. Irenaeus's On the Apostolic Preaching, and uh, that will hopefully provide more light on the unity of the biblical narrative. Brother Mark, thank you for this time. I've enjoyed our talk. Always a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me.